Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. Hey everybody, I've got some calls for this show, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something a little bit. I'm gonna put them at the end, and I'm gonna do some gaming recaps up front this time out. So uh, I've got three games to recap for you here. The first is gonna be this week's game that I ran of my fifth edition Storm King's Thunder. So again, there'll be spoilers there if you haven't, if you want to or think you might play through that that game is in a fifth edition game then you know you might want to avoid that set this segment uh and then i'm going to talk about a couple of games i played in this week with uh carl rodriguez the gmologist presents uh, both the uh, dungeon crawl classics and my first uh, exposure to pathfinder second edition pathfinder so we'll start with uh i think we'll start with storm things storm king's thunder well, that was William the Goat, the official mascot of my player's 5th edition adventuring party in Storm King Thunder. As you recall, William the Goat is a goat that they randomly found in a giant's bag and decided to keep. And for some reason, the gods of Faerun have deemed that William the Goat is immune to danger and monsters and evil NPCs and enemies just sort of ignore him. And he stands on the sidelines chewing things and watching and, and making bleeding sounds as a as the heroes risk their lives for, <laughs> for, for glory and adventure. Uh, so what happened this time? Well, in the previous uh, session, they had concluded their confrontation with the fire giants. They pulled one over on Duke Zalto, the uh, the, the the head of the fire giant faction in Iron Slag. Uh, they they had gone. Uh, partially wanting to to figure out what he's up to in creating this Vonandod construct that's designed to to kill dragons. They they certainly don't want the fire giants to come out on top of the the new ordning once things settle into place. Of course, the ordning of giants has been disrupted because Hecaton, the king of the storm giants, has gone missing and can no longer enforce the uh, the structure that is supposed to exist there among the different uh, the different factions of giants. Uh, the different uh, species or clans or whatever you want to call them, you know, the storm giants, fire giants, cloud giants, frost giants, hill giants, and stone giants. Anyway, uh, so last time they had they had, they had finished up their, their route in Iron Slag, uh, they had managed to avenge themselves on the drow who turned out to be, uh, they, they, they were allies of the fire giants, but were, were then on the outs because they'd failed to bring Zalto the 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 uh, prize he wanted so he allowed them to square off the, the players to square off these these drow who had killed their uh the leader of their party in the first session uh who also happens to be the brother of, of one of the characters uh, and they defeated the drow and were allowed to go but in the whole the other thing they had done is they had conspired with Zalto's daughter Cinderhild to uh steal his conch shell that that, that the giant nobles can use to teleport to Hecaton's palace. So she had, you know, they'd used the fight as a distraction and she had, she wanted to run away from home. So, um, she stole the conch shell from, from her parents, uh, chambers while everybody was focused on the fight. And then after it was all said and done, the, the party was allowed to leave and, you know, she snuck out and, and met with them, handed over the conch shell, uh, and then decided, she just went. She was going to go with them when they went to the the, the Storm King's palace. So she accompanies them. They the one of the characters attunes himself to the uh, uh, Calder, the uh, warlock, Faepak warlock, whose brother had been the uh, their party leader originally. Uh, attunes himself to the conch shell and blows it and bl- blows on it and teleports them. And they find themselves in the Maelstrom, which is the palace of the Storm King. And it is this large uh, rock and coral palace underneath the uh, Sea of Swords. Um, and so, e- even though it's under underwater, there's still air. So um, it's not it's not like they're they're submerged. Although there are pools of water pretty much everywhere you go. Um, so they find themselves in this. Uh, the chamber is empty. They 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 
emerge in the uh, top of this large rune carved in the floor, which matches a rune that is on the, the, the conch shell. They know from attuning to it <clears throat> that it's sort of a, it, even though it uses teleportation, it can only bring you here. It can't take you anywhere else. Um, they had a, I remember they had commandeer, they had bad use of an airship provided to them by the red dragon Clouth, And they had told those guys, Hey, just go to, go to Waterdeep and, uh, we'll, we'll meet you there. If we need you, we'll come find you. Um, so they, they, so then they teleport to the, to the, the maelstrom and, uh, there's nobody there, but they hear this music coming from, from up, up the stairwell. So they go up the stairwell and what they do is they find there are two, uh, female storm giants. One of them has got this big crab, um, giant crab that has coral pipes, um, you know, protruding from it. And this this one uh, storm giant is playing it with some mallets, and every time she touches, kind of a beats on a or, or taps on a certain part of the crab shell. It, it, it's kind of it's functioning kind of like a pipe organ. Uh, and then the other one is singing this m- melodious song. There are two storm giant kind of soldiers at the, at the near the stairs watching, uh, but then gathered in audience to, to to see this performance are four other giants: a stone giant, a frost giant, a fire giant, and a cloud giant. Um, so, uh, they watch for a minute from the, from the stairwell and then the, the characters start to just insert themselves to move forward into the situation. The singing stops and the, the, the storm giant who was singing is like, ah, small folk, what are you doing here? Um, and, uh, Kalmar, who is a, uh, half drow, uh, paladin uh, and warlock paladin multi-class, he kind of speaks up and he, he's kind of BSing him a little bit about, you know, we've come to find out about, I mean, truthfully, we've come to find out about Hecaton, but, and he makes up a story about how they were sent by the dragons. And the giants don't like the fact that they've mentioned the dragons. Uh, they, they go back and forth on, um, on, uh, you know, why are you here? What do you want? And then, and, and then immediately though, or accused, not individually, but, but it's, it's said that your kind are responsible for all this. And the, uh, the, the, the two, storm giant princesses who've been performing say, you know, our mother really loved your kind. She was, she was always a friend to your people and she would go over to the, to the sword coast and she would visit with, with humans and, and, and talk to them. And, well, they say humans, they say small folk because all, you know, everybody's small folk to them. Uh, and, and everything was fine until one day she didn't come back. Um, and your kind murdered her. And then, then our father went to, Hecaton went to um, find out what happened, and uh, he never came back. So this 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 entire crisis was perpetrated by your your people, and they they blame the Lord's Alliance, which is the association of the major powers in in, in the north in, in Faerun. Um, well, you know the, the party's like, well, hey, we didn't do this. We're trying to figure this out. Uh, I think maybe someone. I think this is you're mistaken. And uh, Kalmar even says, I think someone in here is probably responsible. I think he's just making it up at this point, just trying to, you know, keep them on, keep them on their toes and, 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 and off balance. Uh, and so finally, the, 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 uh, the sisters say, you need to speak to the regent. Um, so they order the, the, the guards to take these, to take the party to some uh, room that they keep for where, you know, humans and dwarves and elves, small folk, the, the, the accommodations are their size. There's a chamber with beds and, and tables and stuff set up where they can, they can say, go, go there and, and we will, we will summon you when it's time to speak to the regent. Um, so they, they, they go to the, the chambers and, uh, Calmore sort of strikes up a conversation with the, uh, the guy who's standing guard, the, the storm giant, and then he's pretty affable. You know, these guys are not really, they're guests. They're not completely prisoners, but they're not really on good terms. But, you know, storm giants aren't evil, generally. So uh, so he's, he's being polite and, and, and hospitable, but they understand, and this has been building every time they've encountered with giants, is that it's really clear that giants clearly think they're better than, than everybody else. And so these small folk are annoyances. Um, not to be trusted, not to be counted on, not to be relied upon, but they 
they uh, Kalmar challenges him to, to to roll some dice and it winds up the the, the giant wins um, through some sort of strange inexplicable fact of the way D and D works. I don't know why a twenty foot giant has coinage that is sized for a human being to to, to exchange with them, but hey, that's the way D and D works. So but Kalmar loses a few gold pieces. Um, it kind of, but the giant tells him while they're having this conversation, while they're while they're rolling dice, that what's happened is is, um, kind of gives a little more detail to the uh, to the story that was told. The, the 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 two storm giants they encountered, the princesses are um, Mirren and Nim. Uh, they have a younger sister, Sarissa, who is the regent. Um, because their queen Neri, who who again, as as Mirren had told them, is is a um, thought that giants should have good relations with humans and elves and other small folks, so she would she would go along the Sword Coast and visit, and 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 speak to people and and just keep up with what's going on in, in the human world. Um, but she one day she didn't come back, and so King Hecaton sent his brother Uthor to. Uh, investigate and he found the queen dead on an island near the off the coast so hecaton gets really angry he's going to exact revenge on the the small folk but um sarissa his youngest daughter counsels him to calm down go go make sure do some investigating ask some questions see make sure you go after the right person i don't think that you can blame all small folk for for what's happened and so he goes to investigate, and never he he never returns. So he, they now find a body, but he's not returned. So there's is he dead? Is he just missing? Is someone kidnapped him? What's going on? I think the general kind of tone is most people are assuming he's dead, but but that's not completely known for sure. Um, and so uh, they're supposed to go see Sarissa, who has been installed as the regent. He's he's Tecaton's youngest child. Um. So that that's kind of where they leave off. The guard says, I have to go back to my duty. So he goes back to stand guard. Uh, the party rests a little bit. And then Mirren, the Princess Mirren, comes to find them and says, uh, comes to get them. But <laughs> right before that happens, uh, Calder, who's familiar as a blink dog, he has his blink dog pop out into the hall and, and scout around. And he does it just in time to see... Or, or not really see so much as over here, Mirren talking to some other giants and, and catches kind of a, a fragment of the conversation that says, I don't care, just dispose of them when you're done. So they know something bad is about to happen. So Mirren comes and gets them and says, yes, I'm going to take you to the regent and she will sort this mess out. Uh, they kind of know they're walking into a trap. So they walk back down the hallway towards the staircase. And there are those four giant nobles they had seen in attendance to the musical performance. Um, and they're immediately set upon by these four giants. Mirren manages to slip away. I think, I think one of them gets off an attack and is a little damage to her, but then she manages to get up the stairs. Uh, so, so they're fighting these giants and, um, you know, it's pretty apparent from early on. I mean, I mean, the first round, the giants start hitting them and they have not taken damage like this from anybody they fought. They fought a few giants, but they've only fought them one or two giants at a time, never a, a group of them like this. And so pretty clearly early on it's like oh this is not going to be these guys can definitely kill us i mean they're ninth level at this point but the, the giants do pretty tremendous damage um in fact the cloud giant uses his telekinesis to um shove the the paladin of the group um kane into a pool of water and start trying to drown him he's got him held in a telekinetic grasp <laughs> Uh, and, and, and the other giants are more engaged in melee, but they use some pretty smart tactics. Kalmar, the, the, I mentioned is a half drow paladin warlock. He, he envelops himself in darkness, but he has witch sight so he can see through the darkness. So he's not at any disadvantage to walk up to the edge of his globe of darkness and attack, but anybody trying to attack him is at disadvantage. So he, he manages to go pretty, pretty good toe to toe with this fire giant. He, he does get hit a couple times. Uh, mostly he's hurt because before, Mirren leaves, she summons some lightning on top of him, which, you know, she can't see him, but she knows of the general vicinity of where he's at, and so she just drops a lightning into his globe of darkness and and, and fries him. <laughs> but then she bolts, 
um, no pun intended. She, she leaves and the, um, and goes on with the fire giant and they do, you know, it's, it's back and forth. They're taking damage. Um, but, uh, Calder has a, a necklace of fireballs that he picked up somewhere. So he uses a couple of those beads and, and softens up the giants door, who is a goblin barbarian and, uh, half grim, who is a dwarven forge cleric, then kind of pounce on the first on the stone giant. And they manage to take him out and then move on to the frost giant. Um, and so the, the party came through this alive, and then, of course, towards the end, the, the cleric starts healing them up and getting them healthy. They could not survive probably a second round of that without a rest. So they are starting to face some things, you know, where it's not so easy, and they're getting roughed up, and they've got to be careful about managing their resources um, because because now they're in a they're in a castle full of powerful giants. Um, anyway... Um, they don't kill it, it, it last. They finally they've got the fire giant on the ropes and they're and uh, you know, make an offer for it to surrender or to explain, you know, why are you ambushing us? The fire giant says, Well, Mirren told it told us that you were here to assassinate the regent, and then so we we were obliged to do And they say, No, we're not here to do that, she's lying to you. Um, and the fire giant had kind of earlier in their discussions kind of picked up on the, the you know, why are you, why are you, it's pretty clear the fire giant's very concerned about dragons. Um, you've mentioned dragons a couple of times. What are you talking about? And so uh, it, it manages to, to deescalate the situation where the fire giant agrees, I need to take you to the region and let her sort all this out. So that's where that game ended. Um, and so we will pick up next time. It was a lot of fun. I think, again, um, they took a lot of damage. They were ne- nobody ever got close to dying, but I don't think it's because there's a problem with the game. I know a lot of people talk about fifth edition, particularly as you get higher at higher levels. I really think again, this was the second time they've had a fight with a significant foe, where it was the fact that I have experienced players who know how to use good tactics, and it's not like they came out unscathed, but in the end they prevailed because they just made cool decisions. And of course, once again. Calder turned his blink dog into a T-Rex with a polymorph spell, which I think is always funny. Um, so, uh, and, and then Halfgrim did a good job using his his spells to uh, bolster the party and to keep everything moving slowly. And, and uh, Kalmar, the, the half-drow, excellent use of his his, his abilities and his weapons. So uh, they, they've also wisely... In, leading up to this point in the game, equipped themselves with giant slaying weapons every time they could manage to get their hands on one, so that certainly helps. <laughs> and we had two players absent, um, um, so I had to run. I had to run Kane, the Paladin, and and Dor, the Barbarian, as, as NPCs this time. Anyway, but good tactics uh, won the day for 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 this group. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I gave everybody inspiration just because they. They did a really good job of, uh, but with both the role playing through the situations and tactically dealing with uh, the the combat challenge that was put in front of them. So we will pick up next time and see what happens when they um, when they meet Sarissa, the uh, the regent of the, the storm storm giants. Okay, well, this week I also got to play uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition for the first time, courtesy of Carl Rodriguez of the Geomologist Presents. Uh, Jason Connerly, host of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, also joined as a player. He's playing a goblin archer. Um, uh, another player who who's doesn't podcast or have any kind of public persona uh, is uh, with us as a... Um, a dwarf fighter. And then I decided to play a human wizard. Um, and originally his background <clears throat> was an, as an herbalist. I thought I'd be kind of a secondary healer with, with, with natural healing and stuff, but we're playing the, uh, abomination vaults adventure path. And when I looked at the player's guide for that, <coughs> excuse me, uh, there's a background called, uh, eldritch anatomist, which is looking at, you know, somebody who's interested in this, uh, kind of obscure signs of flesh shaping, um, which is, I think, kind of kind of the way that you create abominations and things like that. But it also means you're kind of a trained physician and that this is just a, maybe something you want to study out of cure. You don't necessarily have to be 
a mad scientist, although I, you could easily see how this could become like a Dr. Frankenstein character. So I switched to that background right before, you know, right before we started. And that's kind of why he's interested in exploring these ruins that have been presented uh, in this region of the world. And so his name is Dr. Eleazar, uh, the human wizard. And what I found with, with Pathfinder 2E is um, character building is a little different. It, it, you have to you have to pay attention. It's not that difficult um, if you're used to building any kind of third edition, fourth edition, fifth edition, or Pathfinder one characters. It's not that big of a leap. Uh, and as we played in the game, and I used my spells, it 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 played. I think not too much differently than a wizard in other kind of modern D twenty systems. I did enjoy, and I thought I thought Pathfinder two has. Um, I like its action economy, where you just have three actions. There's no bonus action or quick action or swift action or, or it, you just have three actions. Um, you can use an action to move, you know, so or you can use all three actions to move up to three times your your speed, uh, or you can use your action to attack, and you can attack three times each each time you subsequent attack. You have a you take a penalty. Uh, most of the spells that you have are two actions, so you can move and cast a spell, or you can you can cast a spell and make a, a basic weapon attack. Um, but it's just a very to me seemed like a very clean way to manage the, the action economy. Um, so, I, so I really like I really liked it um, in that regard. And, and most of the other stuff, as far as skill checks and uh, casting spells and actually making attacks and rolling damage, is is is, is Pretty typical D20 kind of stuff, so. But I had a lot of fun. We start up outside this abandoned lighthouse, and we're going to explore the ruins, and we, we get into a fight with some little mischievous fae creatures. I think they're called mephlets. Uh, and we, we, we fought off two or three groups of them as we, we explore through the, uh, the, 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 the the gatehouse and then across the drawbridge into this, this kind of, I don't know if it's a castle or, or a, a keep or structure. Um, but one of them that we injured pretty bad keeps running away <laughs> and alerting another group till finally we hear him yelling, you know, boss, boss, they're here, you know, come help. And it's like, you know, maybe we need to get out of here because we're, st- we're starting to take some damage. And it wasn't a really long session, but it was a good introductory session. Um, I think I think I found for my character what was most effective was my electric arc cantrip, which just you can zap one person then it jumps over to to a second person if you want to so that was that was i was pretty much a ranged attacker for for most of this uh, although my some of my lore skills came in handy for us to kind of sort out what these creatures were and what what was going on and things like that you know we encountered them in a moat house and then they're up in the rafters among these cobwebs uh, the dwarf character sets the cobwebs on fire <laughs> One of them tries to escape out a window, and Jason's character, the Goblin Archer, just basically shoots him in the in the backside as he's trying to get out the window and kills him. Um, and then we we uh, we crossed the drawbridge, which you know almost collapsed on us and had to jump over it and barely made it. I did. Everybody else crossed it just fine. Uh, and then a couple of other fights inside the this, this 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 ruined building, and then we thought we need to go back to town. There are two other players. That weren't able to make it, so uh, um, we decided to go back to town to to regroup. Also, knowing from kind of my metagame perspective, that's probably where we'll meet these other two characters next time and and go back to to explore the ruins further. But I had a really good time, as always. Carl is a great game master, um, and and Jason's a lot of fun to play with, um, as was the 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 other player. And I'm sure we'll. we'll uh, you know, I've played with the other two guys that should be joining us. It's, it's Arlen Walker of um, Pelham's Wasteland Pod, you know, podcast, and and the third player who also joins us in our Dungeon Crawl Classics games that we play on on every other Saturday. So, uh, yeah, I, I really like Pathfinder too. I, I would be happy to play in that, um, you know, with with, with friends anytime. Um, you know, I'll, maybe remains to be seen whether I would adopt it. You know, you get you get to a certain point, you can only learn so many <laughs> game systems. So I I don't know if I'm at a place right now where I want to learn a whole new game system as a GM. But eh, I could see myself doing it at some point in the future. Anyway, I, I I really enjoyed it, and I'll report out when we play again in a couple weeks. Hey, this this next section. 
segment I recorded and realized I should have put a spoiler warning at the first because it, when we played Dungeon Crawl Classics, we played Tomb of the uh, Tomb of the Scourge Kings, which is um, I hope I wrote that down right. Tomb of the Savage Kings. I can't read my own handwriting, which was just recently released as part of Free RPG Day. So this may be a, a, a DCC adventure that people have picked up or, or maybe their game master has picked up and haven't run yet, but, but may. So just, just fair warning. This is, this has got some spoilers for, cause we, we played through the whole thing in one session for Tomb of the Savage Kings from Dungeon, Dungeon Crawl Classics. You might want to skip this segment if, um, if you don't want that spoiled for you. Saturday morning, I got to play with, um, in, in, uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, uh, Again, this is a game also run by Carl Rodriguez of the DM, the DM, the GMologist presents. Um, one of our, one of our um, regular players couldn't make it, so we decided to run a one shot and treat it as a flashback for a few of our earlier characters. So my character, Burnfried the cleric, and Jason Connolly's character. Um, Idris the Necromancer, and then Otto the Dwarf, who's played by another one of the players. Um, we sort of had this this sort of supposedly earlier in our career, and <laughs> about halfway through the uh, the adventure, the, the 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 session, I thought, you know, we kind of were introduced to Idris in our second session, so and, and none of us knew him. So how is this possible? Well, we, we figured out a solution for that that I'll get to in a minute, but um, so. The premise is that we were hired by this uh, noble woman to uh, track down her kidnapped sister who had been brought to this this uh, pyramid out in the jungle. And she sent her, her halfling uh, servant along with us to guide us to, to the location. Um, and uh, I, I believe the belief was – I am I may be misremembering this um, – I think the belief, the, the 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 way it was pitched to us was, they thought maybe this thieves guild had kidnapped her, the local thieves guild, El Gato, uh, who uh, was known for uh, also torturing people with cats. Uh, I, I, the the joke was that uh, made was that they they douse people in cream and the cats lick them to death. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we, we we start off really at the, at the base of this pyramid trying to figure out a way in. So it's in a clearing in the jungle. Um, on, on one side, there is a, a statue of a, of a baboon headed woman. It's about 12 feet tall. So it's got this, obviously already got this Egyptian theme going on. Uh, uh, and there's, there are hieroglyphs around the base. Uh, Jason's character, Idris is able to read the hieroglyphs that says basically, you know, the moon, Anyone who who, who dis- the moon shines on this pyramid and anybody who disrupts it, you know, will be cursed forever, with awful things happening to them. I think it mentions their, you know, the, the the sands filling their lungs and their eyes turning to to meat and and rotting with maggots and and other horrible things. So, uh, we we kind of look around and can't find any obvious entrance to the uh, to the to the lair or to the, to the pyramid, uh, Jason casts fly on, he, on and he ro- rolls well enough, because this is Dungeon Crawl Classics, the higher you roll, the, the more powerful the spell effect is, that he can let himself and one other person fly, so he adds that to my character. We fly around looking for an entrance and don't find one. We do find a tiny opening in the top of the pyramid on the opposite side from where we started, and it's a shaft. It's about nine inches in diameter, so nobody can fit down it. None of us can anyway. Um, and uh, it's clear that this is where the moon and maybe coming into the pyramid, we think. That's what we assume anyway. Uh, and that this is the thing that we're not supposed to block in terms of the, the moon's rays. And so we, we look around a little bit farther, a little bit farther, a little bit farther. And finally, it occurs to me that um, maybe we need to reflect moonlight somewhere. The, the, we it, I think everybody realizes that the the answer has got to be somewhere near that statue. Uh, but it uh, finally occurred to me to try to use my sh- a shield to reflect moonlight onto the base of the pyramid from the back of the statue. 
And that actually is what does it. Then a, ma a magical door appears. Um, so we go into the... Uh, go into the... Actually, uh, let me back up. <laughs> it's not, it, it wasn't quite that, that uh, clever on my part. I cast uh, Tech Magic, and then I could see that there's some sort of magical effect on the side of the pyramid that we deuce must be a door. Then we think to reflect moonlight onto it, and that's what actually causes the door to open. So we walk into a, a, up this ramp into a, a room. We can see the shaft where the where the, the light would be coming through from from, from the other side. Uh, and then there are several doors. We also note one place where there's there's not a door, but it looks like there should be a door. It's got some red ichor of some kind splattered around it. And again, with the tech magic, I can see the outline of what should be some sort of is probably some other kind of magical door. So we trace it out, run with chalk, and I'm like, let's we'll come back to that. Let's look at some of these other open doors. And so we explore some of the other chambers. In the first one, we find um, a sarcophagus with with a, with a that has been opened, and there's a nine foot tall mummy heaped in the corner. The sarcophagus has already been opened and disturbed. Uh, and then, you know, harkening back to our original adventure where we're exploring this red mound, and there's some uh, some ancient people in there including a, a, a similar statued preserved uh figure which is where um where uh, our, our our warrior who wasn't with us this time recovered recovered his his thrice cursed sword <laughs> our sword of the moon kings uh and, and this similarly had a moon a moon like um theme in this pyramid um so the, the the we're looking around and trying to figure out what's going on, uh, and it's pretty clear that there's a there's a damaged scroll which uh, Idris is able to identify as a magic missile scroll that's been partially used and partially damaged, but it's still functional. Um, and it's clear that the the mummy has been zapped with magic missiles and then also stabbed. So I think well, there's got to probably two people then, some sort of spellcaster and some sort of somebody who's wielding weapons that have attacked this thing. Um, and the more we start putting pieces together, the more fidgety the halfling that is accompanying us <laughs> starts to get. And I think it becomes pretty clear that he knows more than he's letting on. Uh, but he continues to kind of be very ingratiating to us and complimentary of us and just really laying it on thick. So uh, I, I was like, you know, quit lying to us. T tell us what's going on. And he continues to do that. So we decide to... Um, <laughs> We we, we, we we take it, take everything away from him. He tries to run when we finally, like, the jig is up. Uh, but I was able to cast uh, Paralysis and hit him with it before he could get out the door. So while he's paralyzed, we rifle through his pockets, and then we basically strip him down to his skivvies and tie him up. Put him in the sarcophagus and close the door and threaten to leave him there when the, when the spell wears off. Like he panics while he's in the, the sarcophagus and confesses everything that... He and his mistress are our are, are are members of the Thieve Guild. They had they had come here before to uh, plunder the the pyramid, and they awoke something, some some um, you know awfully undead thing, and they were able to escape. But then it appears to have followed them home and kidnapped his mistress's sister, and brought her here to the uh, brought her back here, and so that's what. That's what we're really supposed to be doing. We are legitimately supposed to be returning the kidnapped sister, but um, this is the uh, it, it, she didn't disappear for the reasons they they told us initially. Uh, we also find some hieroglyphs that depict um, it's supposed to be a, a, this this prince figure, um, you know, you know, sparring with with his brother. Kind of indicating he's a great warrior of some kind, and then the next image shows that he's uh, he's he's married and um, having a family, and then in a, a third one, there's a, a figure whose name has been erased. It's called the unnamed priest, uh, who who's receiving a, a, an omen to beware of this demonic jackal, uh, and then the final panel depicts him uh, kind of watching on as a group of what they call sand people, which seem a little smaller than than him and this 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 uh bride of his are are fighting the demon jackal and then finally she's uh, uh the fifth panel shows her being prepared for her funeral because she's dead 
and he, this uh, unnamed priest is being bound into a sarcophagus uh, for, for eternal punishment, very much reminiscent of the the mummy, the movie The Mummy. <laughs> um, but he's being punished because he failed to save this this woman. Um, one thing that that is is looking at the, these these hieroglyphs as Idris is interpreting them, he notes is that his people, who who are kind of a nomadic Bedouin type people, is, is probably the closest analogy, um, are sometimes called the people of the sand or the sand people. So if if, if these are truly his people in this picture, it clearly you know they're smaller. They're they're not small. They're human sized, and this race of people who've created these mummies are just huge. They're, they're, you know, eight, nine feet tall. Um, so, uh, we, we go into another room. There are four sarcophagus, which appear to be concubines who have been mummified along with, you know, and entombed along with their master. Uh, we, we open two of the, the, uh, sarcophagi and get some, some, uh, treasure out of each one. Uh, a necklace and a golden ceremonial dagger, and then the third one, you know, the the, the cover depicts a woman, but also with baboons, kind of indicate maybe she had some pet baboons. Uh, we open that, and the, the mummy itself doesn't come to life, but but the embalmed baboons that are in there with her come to life and they attack. Um, and at that point, things went really south for me. I, I continued to fail any roles to heal people, any roles to turn unholy any i just kept accumulating disfavor with my deity to the point that at some point i had to stop for 10 minutes and just utter chants and prayers to be able to continue with the adventure um but idris was able to uh, uh use his um one of his fire spells and auto the dwarf his, his weapons to to dispatch these these undead baboons without me uh and then the fourth tomb Fourth sarcophagus just again had another mummy with, with some treasure in it. It actually had a magic ring, which the uh, the auto the dwarf put on, and it was some sort of ring that provides pr- protection against suffocation and choking and things like that, which I guess would be useful in an Egyptian themed uh, culture where you might face sandstorms and and um, things like that. So. So we exit there. We, we 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 investigate one other open chamber. We find there's this uh, baboon-faced uh, edifice carved into the wall, and you could walk through its mouth into another room. But we're like, that's ah, clearly a trap. Let's let's not go in there just yet. Although I did have the idea that since two of us were still flying, because Jason had rolled so well, we were both flying for for hours. Um, maybe one of us could fly through it without touching anything and not set off the trap. But but that. That never came to fruition. We, we we continue to kind of explore this area, and we do find the tomb of what we assume to be the uh, the mummy or the the the, the main monster. Um, it had been referred to both by um, our uh, Wimple, who was the, the halfling who was with us, and in the hieroglyphs as, as a shrouded figure that they put some kind of shroud, death shroud, on him that cursed him and and, and turned him into this, this monster that he is. So we find the the tomb with the lid open and it's empty and there's this red reddish liquid. It's not blood, but it's in the pooled in and around the the sarcophagus. Uh, and then it, it, it we kind of figure out this is, must be the shroud. They kind of put this this thing on him, um, and it it may be required to go through this magic door. Like like that that is required to open this magic door. We had we had kind of made note of, but not gone through yet. So I decided to take a, a, a torch and make the halfling do it since he's kind of ticked us all off by being duplicitous. <laughs> Stick it in the, the icker and, and soak it so we can maybe use kind of like a paintbrush or, or something to wipe on the wall, hopefully to open this magic door. But as soon as he touches it, it ripples. And Carl described it as kind of like the the, is it the, the T-1000 from Terminator 2. It starts to create take on this humanoid form and rise up out of the sarcophagus. So um, uh, I don't. I don't think I I'm dead. I don't think I managed to do anything useful in this fight either. <laughs> but uh, Idris used the magic missile uh, scroll he had found, and again, between the efforts of everybody else, the thing is ultimately defeated. Uh, and there are there are kind of red footsteps going out of the room back towards that 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 magical door. So as soon as we approach it, um, the idea was to paint it with the 
the stuff or to, or, or to smear it with the stuff and see if that one. But as soon as we just get close to it with, with the stuff on the, the end of a stick, it opens. And in the room, we see there's a pool of water. There's a woman, obviously the woman we've come to rescue in the water. Uh, her wrists have been cut and she's bleeding out. But she's sort of connected to this set of scales that looks sort of like the scales of Thoth. Um, and then uh, the the mummy creature, I forget what name it had, uh, Karis, that was its name, Karis, um, is looming over her. And so, uh, you know, we don't even stop to, hey, what's going on? Stop that. It's just the fight's on. We roll initiative. Um <laughs> I continued to fail everything I tried to do. But um Otto and Icarus are able to 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 defeat him. And I thought, well, the very least I could do is save this woman we're here to rescue from dying. So I try to I go and pull her out of the water and uh try to, to try to heal her and that role fails. I get even more disfavor from my deity. Uh and and, and um I had an opportunity to maybe you know, and, and, um, so then, but they defeat this thing in the meantime. Well, when he goes, this, suddenly there's this swirling, like, like sandstorm, like effect in the room. And this demon jackal we had seen in, in the, in the carvings on the wall appears. And I thought, well, you know, the last time something likes happened, I cast banishment and, and the spell and able to send this away. And surely I'm, I'm do a good role, but also this woman, we could tell that if I don't heal her right now, she's going to die. So I elected to go in, and, and at this point, everybody else is down to uh, to, <laughs> to a couple of hit points, except for me, because I'd been in the back trying to cast spells futilely. But I went ahead and decided to, to try to heal her. That didn't work. But uh, Jason was able, with his character, to blind the thing with a spell, so it wasn't able to really hit anybody as we tried to extract ourselves from the room. Um, so I failed to save her. But they do manage to turn the tide after this thing is blinded and, and defeated again, again defeated. And then the, the figures that had been just kind of watching idly in, in the picture as the sand people, which apparently it represents us as we've, we've kind of started to figure out, um, appear. But we, we defeat the thing before they can get involved and they kind of nod appreciatively to us and then the, 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 the room goes back to normal. Um, so in a last-ditch effort to... <laughs> to not make it a total waste because the little halfling guy has started to, uh, oh my gosh, you let her die. You failed. Um, I did a call, called on my deity, which you can do in, in, um, in dungeon crawl classics for a miracle. And I'd managed to roll high enough to get it to work. And so I beseeched the deity, um, to, you know, don't let this woman die. We've done everything we can to, to, to save her. And it worked. So she like coughs and, and opens her eyes and she's alive. So um so we did manage to save her. And, and as a result, the uh the the hieroglyphs and the, and the images we had seen changed to show instead of this this guy being cursed to to a life of eternal undeath, it shows that these two are wed and that they they, they go on to rule their land uh, happily ever after. <laughs> uh but we had, we had decided a little bit earlier that, hey, how are we going to deal with the fact that this is supposed to be kind of a flashback prequel? And we don't know Idris because he showed up during our during the second session of our, our initial adventure and none of us recognized him. Well, Idris had said, I, I have, he has a spell where he can alter people's memories. And he, he said, I said, you know, we thought, well, what if it would be funny if he casts that spell and miscasts it and it erases our memory of him? Uh, and he's kind of a he's kind of a BS or anyway, that's kind of the way Jason plays him. So it would be in character for him to do that and then just pretend it never happened. And then the next time he encounters us, he's like, Oh, who are you? Um, so he was going to, what we decided, Jason decided was he's going to, he's going to cast this on when, when it turns out that the, the woman we're rescuing, um, I think her name is Isabel is, is dead. We're going to, he's going to cast it on the halfling so that he doesn't know that we're responsible for her death. But he miscasts it, and it alters the memory of, of, of Otto and, and my character, Bernfried. But at the same time, I had managed to beseech the, the deity for this miracle and get her to come back to life. So we decided it was kind of a, sort of a, us, our two characters not paying attention to what the other one is doing. And so just as I bring her back to life, I'm like, 
All right, well, that's kind of, hey, Idris, what do you, oh, and then he, you know, wipes our memories of, of the encounter, and, and we kind of wander off <laughs> out of the out of the temple in a stupor. So that, that'll suffice to, to kind of hand wave why we, we didn't recognize each other later. It was a lot of fun. Um, it, it was a great adventure. And as, as always, Carl's a great GM and these guys are Jason and, and, and the other guys that play in this game are great uh, people to play with. So um, we're going to play this game again, I guess in a couple of weeks. So it's a good way to send a, spend a Saturday morning. If, if you're going to have to get up, you might as well do it for something you love. And that is the latest on Dungeon Crawl Classics. Okay, let's take some calls. These, these first couple of calls are from Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast uh, talking about the origins of the word shoot. Um, but before that, we've got a call on uh, his thoughts about spell slots. So here we go. Take it away, Jason. Hey, BJ, Jason here, just calling in on Daniel's call about fancy magic and your comments on spell slots. I think spell slots are a workable and versatile system, or they can be, and, and I think they're it's really um, newbie-friendly. I think for new players, spell slots are really easy to understand. You could even write spells down on, on cards, and they could flip those cards over when they cast them for the day, that kind of thing. Um, I like the idea of allowing you to save lower-level spells and higher-level sp- slots, and even to split up those higher level slots. So a third level spell slot could be used for one third level spell or maybe two first level spells, something like that. Um, I, but, but I think it's a totally workable system. It's not my favorite system, but, but I think it's a, a definitely a very serviceable system and very newbie friendly, like I say, especially if you do something like those spell cards and hand them out to players, or you could even do that virtually, but it, it's really easy to crock and to understand. Okay, origin of the word shoot, as far as the act of shooting. According to a quick internet search in the car in the rain, so I'm not going to do a deep internet search, but it looks like it's the quick internet search showed the 1530s. And definitely D&D, if we include the pole arms and the different things in the book, 1530s is not out of the era of D&D. I'd be interested to go back. I also saw a reference to Old Norse as far as the act of shooting, but I, I'm not positive. I'd have to sit down and uninterrupted look at the internet instead of you doing it as a distraction. Um, but, yeah, so I think shoot is older maybe than we think. Probably correspond to, like, the crossbow or maybe with catapults. I, I don't know. With, without looking it up further, I don't know. But it looks like it's an older term than we're thinking it is. Hey, Jason, I think, um, yeah, on the, the spell slots, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a, it's an easy system for remembering how to do things. Uh, I, I think it lacks a certain flexibility. And, and as you're talking about, they'll be able to use higher level spell slots for lower level spells, or maybe even break them down into, to, um, smaller or lower level spell slots or something like that. Which is what the spell points option in fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons does. Um, gives it a little more flexibility there. Um, but yeah, I, I think, like I said before, I've come to appreciate spell slots as not uh, the only way to approach magic, but it is a good, easy way of organizing things for for uh, games, particularly for beginners. So I would agree with you there. I I kind of like the the points or system or some system where you can sacrifice a higher level spell slot for, for multiple lower level, things like that. Um, just to make it a little more flexible so that it's not quite as rigid as the original presentation of spell slots was in our older versions of D and D. Um, but you know, everybody has different preferences on that. Um, I poked around on the internet looking for the origin of the word shoot and I could only find it in the sense of uh, a projectile, references to the to the 15th century which again there it's like well by by the mid 15th century where where I'm seeing kind of the citation we already have uh, early firearms on the battlefield with, with an arquebus and things like that so the the question is is that is it kind of like fire you know when you're talking about firing a a projectile at somebody is it does that enter our lexicon as a, as far as uh Missile weapons, <laughs> along with firearms, the same way the word fire is, 
or does it go earlier and also refer to bows and crossbows? I think any more now, and probably even beginning around that time, you might have used the word shoot to refer to, to bows and crossbows, but but is that only because it's been adopted from the introduction of firearms? I don't know. That, that's not my area of expertise. I'd love to hear from somebody who could clarify that for us in a more definitive way, but yeah, anyway. All right, now these next set of calls are about the idea of reputation. We've got one more call from Jason and then uh, a call from uh, Daniel Norton of the Bandit's Keep. As far as reputation, yeah, I, you would have to, it'd be a little more work on the DM because you would have to track their reputation in each town or settlement, especially if you're doing a points of light campaign where the towns don't have a lot of contact with each other. But that also opens up, you know, that trading party comes from town A to town B and they bring news and, and gossip and all, you know, so you might have a decent reputation. And then when, at, next time you come, somebody's come from another town and really, you know, it's hard your reputation, right? Or if it's a thieves guild or some kind of big organization, it'll be slow traveling, but eventually that work might get down. So I, I, I don't think it'd be that much more work on the DM if you're already tracking those kind of things. But reputation would be a little more work on the DM. But I think it would be neat. And I think would people want a verse, verisimilitude in their games, I think there's a way to do it. Hey, BJ. Daniel from Bandits Keep. Uh, I mean, I'm calling in without all the information, which is, of course, standard here. But you guys are talking about Jason calling about the reputation. I haven't heard the review of the game yet. Um, it just, it made me think that like reputation could be good or bad, right? Like if you are uh, unscrupulous, perhaps you have a reputation that is strong amongst those of your type, right? So that could be kind of interesting. And I actually like the idea of reputation. I've really been like tossing it around in my head a bit. So this was a good little conversation you guys are having because, you know, in my sword and sorcery hack that I'm working on, that's going to be important. Without reputation, you have essentially no level. If you are nobody, you are nobody. <laughs> you know, so I wonder if you could do that to D&D, you know, a tie levels into reputation. If you want to be, uh, I mean, this is more of a thought experiment. If you want to go up and level in D&D, you need to be known because otherwise nobody knows who you are. So <laughs> you're just nobody. So, hmm, interesting. You know, it makes me wonder if that's not actually already implied in fifth edition. Because if you look at the tiers of player or the, I forget what they call it, I think they call it tiers. You know, at first they talk about how you're like, local guys doing something and then you're you're handling regional threats then you're saving the world or whatever depending on the level breakdown that you're at what tier you're at the tiers of play so is there an implication in there that like when you are 10th level and you are taking care of you know threats that threaten an entire country that you're known and that's why people are asking you or calling upon you to do that or are you just some unknown person that somehow is saving the, saving the country or the world or the village for that matter so hmm, it's kind of an interesting thing because I would, I would imagine that you would be known if you had done all these great deeds that would get you to the level that you were at. But I guess if all you did was go into dungeons and slay monsters and nobody found out about it, then not. I think both Jason and Daniel are making pretty good points there. And I think when I, when I, when I kind of weave together what both of you are talking about, yeah, I, I think to, to Daniel's point, it is implied uh, right there in the player's handbook. It tells you kind of the the scope of your heroics at <laughs> the different tiers, starting from kind of the local level to more the uh, regional level to sort of at the fourth tier, you're, you're perhaps defending an entire kingdom or maybe even an entire continent or, 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 you know, section of the world. And then at that last tier, you're, you're facing cosmic multiverse level threats, um, at least in fifth edition. But the this is one of those things where um, I actually interest, listened to, <laughs> interestingly enough, just today listened to a podcast um, from WebDM, and it's one of their Patreon podcasts, so unfortunately it's not open to everybody who's not a Patreon. But in that, Jonathan Pruitt and Jim Davis are talking about what what seems to be maybe coming with this this new expansion of 5th edition to coincide with the 50th anniversary of D&D. You know, the new, uh, the Wild Beyond the Witchlight campaign offers um, non-combat solutions. You, you can you can finish the entire campaign primarily through diplomacy and negotiation and, and intrigue. Um, but, but, but they've commented several times on their show about how 5th edition... Um, 
kind of left exploration and social aspects of the game completely up to the DM without being real prescriptive, which is good. But sometimes it's good to have procedures and things to fall back on if you're just not sure what to do. You can always, it's easier to have a rule and decide you're going to throw it out or amend it than to have no rule or procedure on how to handle something. I mean, some DMs can figure it out and some can't, but, um, and, and this notoriety thing is one of those things that's implied, certainly, in the, the, the tiers of play, but there's nothing, They there, there's, there are no suggestions in the player's handbook or the Dungeon Master's Guide. I mean, there are some scattered throughout, but there's no coherent, like, here's here's a here's a default way to handle this. You know, you know, you take it or leave it, but at least we've thought out something to give you some advice on that. But I think you're talking about, yeah, definitely, how would you handle that, you know, because, you know, in a rule set, and Jason's making a good point about well, what if, what if you're you're in a setting where there's distance and and lack of communication between the settlements, you'd be a stranger everywhere you went, <coughs> or or your reputation can only travel so far, because nobody just people just don't travel that much. Um, so that might be one thing you'd want to assess in the setting. But but I guess you guys are actually between the two of you giving me kind of a, an idea that might might be worth trying out. Which is the, the is the game master? You would need to keep a list of maybe the settlements that people visit, and you would have a notoriety, some kind of notoriety score or rating that is just is just how well known you are in this town or this region. Um, so there's and that's just just whether you're known, and then you would ha- also have to have a reputation score, which is well now, you know. Fame can be a good thing or a bad thing. What are you known for? Are you known for being a, a hero or a reliable person or someone who's done something interesting or really cool? <coughs> or are you known for villainy and, and the last time you were here, you really caused problems for everybody and everybody hates you? So you, you'd have to have a, a one aspect, which is notoriety, and one aspect, which is reputation. But you would have a, you know, I think it would be pretty easy if you kind of come up with a little measure for that or a little metric for that to just keep a list of everywhere the person visits. Um, and then and maybe an idea if you do something really awesome that, that, that improves your standing in a certain place, maybe that might give you a little bit of a bonus or a tweak to your, your score in places within a certain distance. Or by contrast, if you do something really heinous, are, are awful. <laughs> you know that word gets out at least regionally. I mean, you have to. You, that would be up to kind of how you've set up the, the flow of communication and how, where people go back and forth. I think you could model that. And I it's certainly not. I don't think that's that an original idea. I, th- I think other game systems have done that. But that is something that, I think a lot of times D and D encourages or asks for. But I don't know that any version of the game has ever actually done that, other than, the. Uh, Baldur's Gate video game. There's some kind of reputation score in there that you don't see, but it's there. And if you engage in evil behavior within the walls of, of settlements, you get the next time you show up, the town guard <laughs> comes after you, and you find that people don't want to, aren't, the NPCs aren't as friendly. So, um, but I don't know if, if any of the paper and pencil tabletop versions of D and D have ever handled that explicitly. I mean, I could be corrected if somebody knows of, of me if that. Uh, please um, let me know. I know 3rd Edition had, I think it was in the Player's Handbook 2, they had something where you could join organizations and, and get a kind of a rating on how closely or, 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 or how well-affiliated and well-regarded you are within an organization you belong to, and that conveyed certain benefits. But I don't know if this general kind of, you know, your reputation as a hero or a villain or a, or a you know, a... A person who does great deeds or whatever. I don't, I don't know if they've ever tackled that in the way mo- I think most of us are thinking about it. So, but I don't think it would be hard. I, I'm keep. I want to keep working on that because that's a really interesting idea, and I'd like to hear more thoughts from anybody else who wants to contribute to that. That that's a pretty cool um, concept. So, um, and you know, we're all we're, we're all referencing is that that honor thing in the Green Knight, where the idea is that. You've got an endpoint to your quest, and you have to reach that that quest with a certain amount of honor. If you get too much dishonor, then you you drop off the quest. Of course, that's a conceit of the game. I don't think you could do that in D anD. d But it does it does give an example of a way you can have someone's honor and dishonor moving up and down based on their actions. Um, 
but yeah, I think we're off. We're off on a completely different topic now when we're talking about what, what Jason and, and Daniel are talking about there. Anyway, good thoughts. Enjoy the conversation. I hope we keep it going. Uh, and now we're going to turn to, we've got another call from Daniel. Uh, and then some thoughts from Carl Rodriguez on uh, the problem of Palpatine's throne room or the monster at the middle of the maze. Not at all in an attempt to start things up. This is Daniel from Bandits. Keep listening to the middle of Joe's call about the Palpatine thing. And he said, uh, hmm, no, it's it's a bad trope because things are in a certain place. And then he said he doesn't use wandering monsters because he likes to put things in a certain place. Hmm. Oh, shots fired. Well, uh, Joe, uh, give us a call and let us know what you think about that. <laughs> oh, man, I... I guess I have a response to the Emperor Palpatine in his throne room thing. One of the best situations where I got the party good was they attacked a fortified location and I had the bad I didn't have the bad guys attack him in waves cuz that would be dumb. In fact, the bad guys fell back, fell back to the quote-unquote throne room and then set up a defensive barricade and proceeded to kick the shit out of the players. Um so this was for a game of um D&D 5E and actually, I think I perma-killed a character, but they were brought back by a magic item. But it was a game of D&D 5e, and it was actually one of the Pathfinder Adventure Paths that I adapted for 5e. And I think after that, they're like, well, I don't think the con- your conversion is working. No, it has nothing to- had nothing to do with my conversion. It had to do totally with my fallback tactics and defensive positions that I set up for the bad guys. who then proceeded to beat the shit out of the characters, for the most part. And if Jason Connerly hears this, or even Joe Richter hears this, they're going to go, oh, I guess Carl has gone soft. Because I hear all these tales where he beat people up and TPK'd them, but how come he's never done that to us? Maybe you guys are smarter players? I don't know, maybe you haven't figured you guys out yet? I know Jeff still plays in my games, even though he was subject to some of those. Oh, sorry, redact that. One of my friends, whose name I will not say, plays in a lot of my games, and um, he still plays. And he still remembers the time when I got him with the droids cause droid, in Star Wars because they didn't think that the droids were the enemy, and they were, which was kind of funny. So um, anyway, no, I don't know. I think you guys are more savvy players, I can tell, and I think that's a good thing. And uh, I don't know. Maybe I've just become too nice. Maybe all all right. I'll just hang it up. Hang it up next time, the next game, next year, five years, whatever. Wow, everybody's uh everybody's calling out Joe Richter. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get a call from Joe before the next episode airs. Um yeah, Carl, I don't you know, I I don't I play with a lot of very experienced gamers and I don't pull punches. They just they know the game. They they've mastered the system and they're pretty good at using tactics and and uh Part of me as a DM, I think, well, I got to ramp up the. There's that that thing of I got to ramp up the danger to make this a challenge. Versus, well, why do you want to punish a player for playing well? You know, uh, let, let them enjoy the fact that they outsmarted the situation and and came through. Um, came through. So yeah, I don't. You know, now I've been playing with you for for a few weeks and a couple of games, and I'll, I'll talk about th- those games in this episode. Um. You know, when people play clever, I, I don't. I don't think. I don't. Since you've ever pulled punches, it's just. Uh, I think you know most of us. When you get with a group of people who've been playing D anD D and similar games for twenty, thirty, or more years, um, they're not going to make rookie mistakes. <laughs> a lot of times, and 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 uh, you know, you can roll in the open and let the dice where fall fall where they lie, and still those 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 experienced gamers, even when they're playing first and second level characters, are probably more likely to. To, to get get out alive. So um yeah, I, I wouldn't feel bad about that. But yeah, that is a uh, you know, that that's what happened in my uh, my old school game where where they 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 did lose a player. Um but I think that has more to do with the fact that you're just more likely to die in in old school essentials and BX at, at first level. But uh they they had kind of one foray into this goblin hobgoblin lair and then retreated because they had done pretty well but they were down on hit points and out of spells and stuff well when they came back the the hobgoblins had fortified all the entrances to their lair 
uh, and they lost a player trying to <laughs> in, a, in a frontal assault trying to get that. So uh, you know, it's I think it's okay for the DM to use tactics as long as you know if you're playing stupid uh, characters that you know you know the, the uh, you know a kind of monster that doesn't capable of tactics and then maybe not but when you're playing you know orcs and hobgoblins and um intelligent creatures that that are you know military or 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 war is a big part of their culture of course they're going to they're going to have tactics you know um and and going to utilize them and and they're not going to just kind of just stand around wait for somebody to come up and pick a fight so uh I, i don't think you're i don't think you've gone soft at all but uh I'm, I'm certainly enjoying your, your, your game mastering style. So anyway, thanks for the call. Um, Carl, that was Carl Rodriguez of the Geomologist presents. Uh, also thanks to Jason of the nerds RPG variety cast and Daniel of bandits keep be sure and check out their podcasts. Uh, also available here on anchor. And then also Daniel has a couple of YouTube channels, one where he talks about his ideas about kind of game design and, and how to build dungeons and, and various topics like that. And then another one where he does live play with, with his home gaming groups. So uh, check all that stuff out. Show them some, uh, some appreciation for, for the content they put together. And that's it for this episode of The Arcane Alienist. I want to thank Dave Bone for the cover art that I use for the episodes. Check out ironseer.com. And the music is Come and Get It by Scott Holmes Music. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, Give me a call sometime through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website. And I'll be back in the future with another episode.